0: Bibles, this morning, if you would please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We began our study of 1 Corinthians uh, back in September of last year. And in these few months that we've been studying this book, I've had to preach on some very unusual topics. I've preached on some things that I normally wouldn't talk about. Uh, I've talked about uh, church discipline, and I've talked about Christians taking other Christians to court... We've talked about sexual immorality, about marriage and divorce. Uh, divorce. Uh, we had a sermon about, can I be happily unmarried? And today I'm on another topic that is unusual for me, and, and one maybe I probably am not too comfortable in talking to you about. But today the subject is paying the preacher. Just simply that, just paying the preacher. Some of you call it giving the devil his due. Um, <laughs> But this is what you get when you're determined to preach straight through the Bible. And that's what we do at Berean. We take the Word of God and I, we go book by book and verse, by verse chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we just have to take everything that God has in His Word. And if this is what Paul thought was very important for him to teach the Corinthian people, and if God saw fit to include this in His Word, then I certainly do think that it's important for us today. In fact, I, I think it is profitable for us for, because if we're a, as a church, if we're going to be what God wants us to be, if we're going to be a church that God blesses, then we ought to be a church that is considerate in the way that it takes care of its pastor. Now, I want to say right up front today that what I have to preach about and the comments that I'm going to make are in no way critical and are they in no way a complaint against the Berean Baptist Church. You take care of me very well in this church, but unfortunately, there are many churches in which pastors are not very well taken care of, and perhaps this is why God brings us to this passage today, to make sure that our practice is what it should be. Today, there are preachers that quit the ministry. Uh, When you consider the amount of time that's involved, the number of hours that are spent in preparation the amount of education that it takes, whether that's public education or private education, when you consider all the things that go into the preparation for the ministry and you compare that to secular jobs, what you find out is that the time and the money most of the time really doesn't add up. And so there are preachers that quit because their salary is not commensurate with the amount of work that they do. Now, I know that there are some of you that like to make jokes about this, My wife is so considerate of me so many times, but sometimes she likes to joke with me about it. She says, what are you you tired for? Complaining about being tired? All you do is sit behind a computer all day long. Why are you tired? And uh, Larry Jefferson, he's not here today. He's in Hawaii. I'm not, but he's in Hawaii. And uh, he's always asking me, what do you do all day long? You watch soap operas all day? What do you do? Well, there's a lot of time that's required in being a pastor. It's a time-consuming job. And uh, the, de- the hours or days that you don't see me here in the office at church doesn't mean that I'm not doing something because I stay at home a couple of days a week and I, I study from there. So actually my work week is about six and a half uh, days every week. So it's a time-consuming job. But there are preachers who quit the ministry because they can't take the hours, they can't take the workload, and they can't take the pay. You might have heard about the pastor who received his paycheck from the uh, church treasurer. He went to the bank to cash it, And the uh, teller at the bank was very apologetic because the only thing that she had to give him was a a stack of bills that were soiled and dirty. I mean, these, these bills look like they've just been run through the mud or something. And so she said to the pastor, you need to be very careful. Make sure you wash your hands because that old, dirty, soiled money, you might get sick from that. And he said, don't worry, not even a germ could live on my salary. So that's a problem. You get that? That's a problem for a lot of pastors and ministers. And today it's getting increasingly harder and harder to fill the pulpits of of churches that need pastors because there are more and more men that are leaving the ministry and there are more and more people that choose to do something else rather than to enter into the service of God in preaching His Word. I don't have any statistics for independent Baptists about this. And just by virtue of the fact that they were independent keeps us from having such statistics, but I do understand that in the Southern Baptist churches that there is a statistic that says that there are 2,200 Southern Baptist ministers and staff people that leave the ministry every year. We have a candidate running for president who's a former Southern Baptist minister. Does that tell you something? Uh, The former governor of Kentucky, the one who lost the uh, bid for re-election last year, was a primitive Baptist preacher who pastored a church just a couple of blocks from where I lived in Lexington, Kentucky. Every month I get a a paper from the California Association of Regular Baptist Churches, and every month there are churches in there that are without pastors, and there are churches that go months and months in that condition. And one of the main reasons that men leave the ministry is because of lack of financial support. They can't take care of their families on the amount of money that the church pays them. And many small country churches definitely have that problem. may have heard about the country church that, that prayed for a new pastor, and they said, Lord, please send us a poor, humble preacher. You keep him humble, and we're sure to keep him poor. And that's the way a lot of people are with their ministries, a lot of churches are. They don't respect the needs of the pastor, and so they're determined to keep the man poor. But then you have the other extreme as well because you have the televangelists and you have those types of preachers and they're preaching the prosperity gospel. And so they believe that they ought to live in opulence and extravagance and luxury. That's to be their lifestyle. You may remember Jim Baker, who was head of the PTL, built Christians out of millions of dollars to, to, to live his lifestyle. He had an air-conditioned doghouse. You may remember Oral Roberts who said that if he didn't raise nine million dollars, that the Lord was going to kill him, and while widows were sending in their last dollars, he and his family were living in mansions. Benny Hinn flies a private airplane, and a private air, airplane, a jet, and rents out ten thousand dollar a night hotel rooms. So you have two extremes here. On one end of the spectrum, there are churches that are determined that they're going to keep the pastor poor. And on the other end, there are those who live these extravagant lifestyles. And somewhere in the middle of that, between those two extremes, is where we find God's standard for how the pastor of the church is to be treated. Some people ask the question, where did you ever get the idea that you're supposed to pay the preacher? Uh, Why should you support the pastor? And there may be people who are resentful because part of the money that they give to the church, their tithes and their offerings, goes to the support of me and my family. So just how should you feel towards the preacher? This isn't something that I would normally preach on. And uh, understand, we're preaching on it today because this is in the Scripture, right in the verses that we're going verse by verse through the Bible. This is where our text takes us today. That's a long introduction, so let's stand, if you would, please. We're going to read from God's Word. We're going to read just one text verse today, but keep your Bibles open because we're going to consider all 14 of these verses. The text verse is verse number 14 of chapter 9. We're going to read this, and I'm going to speak to you today on the subject, Support Your Local Preacher. Now, I want all of you to feel a part of the sermon today, so we're going to read this verse out loud together. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 14. Read this with me, please. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the principles that you teach throughout your word that help us to be better people, better Christians, and to serve you better. Help us, Lord, as we consider this subject today, the importance of of what it means to take care of the pastor of the church. And we just thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Keep your Bibles open now, if you would, please, because we are going to look at all 14 verses as we read and study Scripture today. In these 14 verses, we find that Paul asks 17 questions. 17 questions that he asked. You know, we're, we're used to, as we read the Scriptures in 1 Corinthians, reading where Paul is answering questions, but here, Paul asks more questions than he actually makes statements. And the idea here is that he wants to get these people thinking about what he's going to say and help them to understand just a little bit better why it's so important that the church takes care of its ministers. Now, if you look at verse number 1, he begins this way. He says, "'Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord?' If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. Mine answer to them that do examine me is this. Have we not power to eat and to drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as the other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord, and Cephas, or I only, and Barnabas? Have we not power to forbear working?" And there we see that Paul is throwing out all of these questions, and here he shows us something. First of all, we see here that there is an indication of a problem. And that doesn't really surprise us at all, if you've been with us in the study of 1 Corinthians, because the whole book so far has been a study about problems. Over and over again, Paul is addressing many things that have gone wrong in this church. And evidently, there is a problem in this area too. Something's not quite right here because these people evidently are not supporting and not taking care of the ministers in the church as God would have them to. Now, there are people in this church that were questioning two particular things about Paul. The first is that there are some in the church who were judging Paul's authority. And so he begins with, with this question, am I not an apostle? And evidently, there were people that were asking the question because in verse number three, he says, mine answer to them that examine me is this. So what are these people saying about Paul? He has to respond with a statement or a question, am I not an apostle? And so evidently, there are people in the church who are saying that Paul is not an apostle. They're saying, well, Peter's an apostle, James is an apostle, John is an apostle, but Paul is not an apostle. Why would they say such things about him? Well, there are certain qualifications for a person to be called an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of those qualifications is that this person had to have personally seen the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, Peter had seen him. Uh, James saw him. John saw him. All of the twelve apostles saw him because uh, they'd been called out by Jesus. They walked with him. They were in his personal ministry. But as far as we know, the Bible really doesn't tell us that Paul ever saw Jesus Christ personally while he was in the flesh. But there's one thing that we do know for sure, and that is that Paul saw him afterwards. After Jesus was resurrected from the grave, he had indeed seen the Lord Jesus Christ. We know the story of Paul as he was on the road to Damascus. There he saw that great shining light that blinded him. And there Jesus Christ spoke to him oddly, audibly and presented himself to the Apostle Paul. And then there were other occasions from reading Scripture that we learn that that Paul actually did see. He did see Jesus after he was resurrected from the grave. Now that's one of the reasons why that we don't have any modern day apostles. And that's because there is no one who has personally seen Jesus Christ. Now, we've seen him by faith, but we haven't seen him with our physical eyes. Then another justification for calling a person an apostle was, can this person perform miracles? And of course, Jesus had given the 12 apostles the ability to perform miracles. He says in Matthew chapter 10, in speaking to the 12 disciples, As ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. So these apostles had the power to heal. But we also know in reading the life of Paul, especially in the book of Acts, we find there that Paul also had the ability to heal. These 12 apostles that Jesus called out, they have been called to be the representatives of Jesus Christ and the preachers of the gospel to the Jewish people. But Paul had been called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And so his ministry among the Gentiles was to do exactly, exactly the same thing as those 12 apostles did among the Jews. And so he says here in verse number 2, If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. He means to you Gentiles. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. And so Paul is saying there, here is the proof that I am an apostle I have a work that's begun here in the city of Corinth. There's a church here that's been established in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I preach the gospel among you, and the proof that I am an apostle of Jesus Christ is there are people in the city of Corinth who have trusted Christ. I've given them the gospel, and you, yourselves, you are the proof of my apostleship. So Paul states his authority in calling himself an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's doing here, he's building up towards this argument, the argument that he's going to make about whether he ought to receive their support. Then the second indication that there is a problem here is that some question Paul's rights. In verse 4, he says, Have we not power to eat and drink? He says, Don't I have the right to receive food and drink from the church that I minister to? And then he says in verse number 5, Don't I have the right to take my wife? Can I take my family along with me? Shouldn't they also receive the support of the church to which I minister? Now, we we know that Paul was not married at this time. And had he been married, did Paul have the right to have his wife supported in the ministry as well? Well, he mentions the other apostles, and he talks about the Lord's brothers. And specifically, he names Peter in this. He says, Cephas, verse number five, have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as the other apostles, and as brethren of the Lord, and Cephas, and that's Peter. And so he says, they did it, the other apostles did it, Peter did this. And that's an interesting reference that we find here, because as most of you know, the Roman Catholic Church believes that Peter uh, was the first pope. Well, Peter was married, so if Peter was married, then why can't all of the popes be married? I don't understand that. I mean, it looks to me like they should be able to. But, but Paul says that Peter was married and that he took his wife with him. In Mark chapter 1, we read where Jesus did a very special thing for Peter's wife. You know what he did? He healed Peter's mother-in-law. Now, most unmarried men uh, don't go out and adopt a mother-in-law uh, without getting a wife in the process. And in fact, there are some people who say that the reason that Peter denied Jesus three times was because Jesus healed his mother-in-law. But Paul says, Paul says here, Peter took his wife along with him when he preached. So did the other apostles. They took their wives and the people met their needs and the needs of their families. And so based upon that, I have the same right. Well, what does that mean to us? It means that every preacher of the gospel who devotes himself to the full-time ministry of the Lord has the right to expect that the church will meet his needs and the meet the needs of his family. So here is the problem. Paul is not an apostle, they said, but Paul says, I am too. They said, Paul, you shouldn't receive support from the church. And Paul said, yes, I should. So Paul goes on here then, and he develops the argument a little bit further. And next we see that Paul gives us some illustrations from life. In verse number 7, Paul draws from... a. Uh, some illustrations in life that show you that you ought to support the minister. So he asks three more questions in verse number 7. He says, Who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges? Nobody. Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Nobody. Who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Nobody. So in verse 8 he says, Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same Also. Is it just me who's saying this? Or doesn't the law of God, doesn't it declare the very same thing? Now, hold on to that thought just a minute. We're going to come back to God's law. But first, we're going to look at these illustrations. He uses illustrations from life. He says, in the natural world. Now, forget about the spiritual world for just a minute. In the natural world, in the natural realm, there are examples that show you that this is the right thing for the church to do. So the first illustration that he gives is a soldier at war. And he says, who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges? He means, who goes to war and pays himself or saves up his money in order to go to war? When a man enlisted in the Roman army, the army says, we're going to meet your needs, we're going to supply your food, you don't have to worry about that, you don't have to worry about buying your food, we're going to give that to you. You don't have to worry about your clothes. We're going to give you the thing that you need to wear. We're going to give you a uniform. You don't have to worry about your weapon. Don't worry about buying your own weapons. We're going to supply that for you, and we're going to pay you a salary too. I know some of you here uh, may be serving in the military now, and some of you have served in the military in the past and as much as you love the military, if you did or if you do, and as much as you love your country and as much as you love serving for your country, if the military came to you, and let's say, for instance, that the, mil- uh, that the uh, Marine Corps says, you know something, we're recruiting to get men into the Marine Corps. And so what you need to do, you need to save up your money, start right now, Start while you're young, saving up your money. Make sure you've got all your money so when you get into the Marine Corps that you'll be able to support yourself. There's food to buy. You've got to have money to buy food, so make sure you've got enough money for that. There's uniforms that you have to wear, so you make sure you save up all of your money so when you get into the Marine Corps you'll have something to wear. You need weapons. And so save up your money. Accumulate as much as you can in order to buy weapons. And they say, as a matter of fact, we're having a sale on weapons today. Hand grenades, $50, two for 99 And you, you'd think, well, I wouldn't join the army under those circumstances, the Marine Corps. Who would do that? I have to raise my own funds and pay my own way. And this is what Paul is saying. That is absolutely ridiculous. He says, no, the army takes care of its people. The Marine Corps, the Navy, whoever it might be, they take care of their people. And he says, doesn't the minister have the right to expect the same? Then he goes on, he gives another illustration. He talks about the farmer who plants. And he says, who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat of the fruit? Does the man who plants his own vineyard, does he have to go to the supermarket to buy his grapes? Of course not. He's the one who plants the vine. He's the one who waters it. He fertilizes it. He hose it out. He makes sure that, that uh, the weeds don't overtake it. Then he comes and he harvests his crop. Then wouldn't he have the right to eat of the crop that he raised? And, of course, the answer is yet. Yes. But then he goes on and he gives us another illustration. He gives us an illustration of the shepherd and his flock. Who feeds a flock and doesn't drink of the milk? Now, picture in your mind for just a minute a shepherd out on one of these hot, dusty hillsides and he's in the middle of the day, he gets very thirsty. Now, these shepherds, of course, they raise sheeps sheep and goats, and uh when he got thirsty, couldn't a shepherd just go over there and grab one of those goats and take that goat and begin to milk it and then drink that goat's milk? Doesn't that sound refreshing? That really does, doesn't it? You know when I was young my uh my grandfather used to milk cows, and he he knew how to take that cow's udder. And he could turn it just a, a special way and squeeze it. And he could shoot, ma- shoot that milk right into his mouth. He's dead now. I don't know if that had anything to do with it. But he could do that. What Paul says, here's the natural thing about it. This is what you expect. So why are you giving me such a hard time about it? And so apparently there are some who said, Paul, we don't have to support you. And Paul says, look at the soldier. Look at the farmer. Look at the shepherd and then you need to do likewise. Doesn't that tell you something? Well, now we go on to the third part of this, and this is really the most important uh, part of uh, of what Paul has to say on this, because we have the natural illustrations from life, but the determining factor in this is what does the Bible say about it? So thirdly, we have illumination on this subject from the Scriptures. The Bible has something to say. Now, in verse number 9, he says, "'For it is written in the law of Moses, "'Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. "'Doth God take care for oxen? "'Or saith he it altogether, for our sakes? "'For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, "'that he that ploweth should plow in hope, "'and he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of, its, of his hope. partaker of his hope. "'If we have sown unto you spiritual things, "'is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things?' If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Now, here we see that you can lay down all of your reasonable arguments. You can take all of the logical arguments that you want to try to prove this. But in the end, if you want to determine a spiritual matter, the place that you go is to the Bible. What does the Bible say about this? So Paul pulls out a scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. You might want to read that later. But God is in the middle there in Deuteronomy, laying down all of these practical laws. And then he comes and he sets down this principle about an ox. And God says, when the ox is treading out the grain, you do not muzzle the mouth of the ox. Now, here's what they did back in those days obviously they didn't have all the modern methods that we do of of separating the wheat and and getting it prepared in order to make their bread. And so what they would do, uh, they would need to separate the kernel of wheat from the husk, and so they would lay out the wheat on a threshing floor. Then they would bring in their ox, and the ox would have these big hooves like this, and the ox would walk around on top of that grain, and as he walked on the grain, he would break down the husk, and the Uh, kernels would begin to separate and then they would come along with a winnowing hook and they would take this winnowing hook and they'd throw the wheat up in the air the chaff would blow away then the heavier kernels would settle down on the threshing floor now here is this ox and he's lumbering around hour after hour walking over all of this grain mashing the grain down trying to separate those kernels of wheat and what would the ox naturally do well the ox would get hungry And so the ox would bend down and he'd begin to eat that wheat. Well, there might be a farmer who'd say, well, I don't want that big dumb ox eating my wheat. And so I'm going to put a muzzle on him. I'm going to put something on his mouth to prevent him from eating the wheat. And so the ox works all day long, but the ox can't eat. And you know what God said about it? God said, you can't do that. He said, you have to treat the ox right. Give the ox something to eat. Now you know what that shows us? And I'm going to say something very liberal here and very PETA. I'm going to say this. God loves animals. God loves all of his creation. He made it all. And, and God has a special law that he made for the ox. At Christmas time, the Roman Catholics uh, have people bringing their dogs and their cats and their ferrets and their hamsters and all those things. And they bring them in so the priest can bless them. And uh, they have their patron saying to the dogs and the cats We're not going to do that anytime soon here at Berean. But God loves his creation. And the thing we need to understand is we're not to carry that too far. There are people who are concerned about spotted owls and about salamanders and tree frogs, but they don't care anything at all about millions of unborn babies that are killed every year. We need to understand this very clearly, that God regards human life much more than he does animal life. I had a lady ask me a a few months ago, she was here at church, and she asked me if dogs go to heaven when they die. And I said, dachshunds do. Uh, (laughs) Poodles don't go to heaven and cats don't go to heaven. Actually, I did say, no, dogs don't go to heaven. And and she hasn't been back to church since because of that. But Paul here brings up the oxen. And notice what he says. Doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. So he says, do you think that God only has in mind the ox here? Is that what you think? Have you noticed that oxen don't read? And so why does God say this? Well, there's a bigger principle involved. He's setting down, laying down a principle for us. And the principle is the laborer is worthy of his hire. You're supposed to pay the person who works. Now, he uses the same illustration in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. And so if you were to refuse to pay the minister, then you're muzzling the ox. And according here to verse number 10, you're causing the one who labors to labor without hope, and so the laborer, this minister, he is also to share in the blessings which God provides. The many ministers, they do quit the ministry because the church is simply determined they're going to keep him poor. And what they've done, they've muzzled the minister. And so what they do with the minister is they, they keep him so poor that he has to spend an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out how to pay his bills and how to take care of his family. You ought to take care of the preacher very well so that he doesn't live without or live with these common concerns. That should not be his concern. There are pastors today that go out and sell Amway. Pastors are selling Herbalife. They're getting into all kinds of different uh, uh, professions or different businesses to try to, to help pay their way. And it's just not the right thing to do. And let me add this to it while I'm at it. There are some pastors who have to put their wives to work because they can't support their family. The time constraints of the ministry on a family, a pastor's family, are extremely heavy. They create a lot of hardship. And Paul has already given us the example in verse number 5 that the wife is included with this. And so they took their wives with them. So he says, support your local preacher. Don't muzzle the ox. That's what Paul's saying. Now, let's make two quick points here, and then we're going to move on to the last part of the message. The first one is that Paul had the right to receive support. And I think without question, Paul has proved this point. He says in verse 11, very bluntly, If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? Paul had planted spiritual seeds at Corinth, and now he ought to receive from the material harvest. So it's plain and clear the answer to this. It's it's true because of the illustrations that he gives from nature. It's true because of biblical illumination on the subject. So the answer is absolutely yes, take care of the minister. Then the second one is Paul had the right to refuse support. Now Paul says in verse 12, others have the right to the support, and if they have the right, I also have the right. But then he goes on and he says, I have not claimed that right. Now, to us, this whole point would, would seem moot at this, at this place because he spent all this time trying to argue about why they should support him. But then he says, I haven't taken that right anyway. I haven't taken anything from you. And if you look at the Scriptures, you know that's true. Paul had not taken support from them. Read Acts chapter 18 and you find out that, that Paul made a living by making tents. And that's how he made his money. He didn't take, take money from these people. But Paul is showing us something here, that he loved what he did so much. He loved it so much that he's willing to do it. He's willing to preach the gospel even if he never got paid for it. And if you have a preacher that preaches solely because of the money that's involved, he ought not to be in the ministry in the first place. Now, there are seminaries and there are denominations where there are men who have decided, this will be my profession. I've decided that I'm going to become a preacher. I'm going to become a professional minister. And they've done it simply because this is their chosen vocation. This is the way they're going to make money. I happen to believe that is not right. God is the one who chooses the minister. God puts people into the ministry. Now, I know there are people thinking, well, what about my free will in this? And all the free willers, they can go crazy at this statement. But God chooses the minister. That's what Paul said, 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. And if you read in another place, you find out there that Paul says that God separated me from my mother's womb for this purpose. Find your free will in that. Pick it out in that statement. So Paul loved so much what he was doing that he did it without pay. He had the right to refuse their support if he wanted to, But that didn't mean that they had the right to refuse to support him if they wanted to. Now, what Paul says here, I mean, this is the principle that he laid down, and he did a certain thing himself, but to follow Paul exactly in this, Paul's own practice, would be practically impossible for the minister today. I mean, if you have a full-time minister, then he's going to have to receive his support from his church. Part-time minister, maybe that's a different story. But full-time ministry, the church ought to support the pastor. Now we come to the fourth and final part of the message because this is where Paul gives us the importance of supporting God's servants. Look at the way that he concludes in verses 13 and 14. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple. And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Now what Paul's doing right there, he's intensifying the argument because he's going back to the practice of Israel in the Old Testament. And he says, didn't the priest partake of what was given at the altar? And they did. The sacrifices that were brought in, they made the sacrifice, but then the priest was allowed to take that sacrificed animal and to eat it. That's where he got his food. And if you remember, when they assigned all the different territories of Canaan, after the people went into the land, the Levites, the tribe of the priests, they were not given any land inheritance. There's no place to grow their crops. But instead, what God did for them was to give them special cities, and he told the other people of Israel, you support the priest. And so, Paul lays down that argument. But then he goes on and he nails it down in verse 14, and you can't miss it there. We read it a minute ago. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So Jesus sets down the principle. We find the principle in the Old Testament Scripture. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes about it right here. You cannot miss that this is the God-approved, godly way to do this. Now, one thing that I surely do admire... I do admire a bivocational pastor. When you have a church that's too small to support the pastor, and this man goes out here and he has to get a job, and he labors at that job, and and still he works preaching in the church, I admire a man like that. My dad had to do that for years. Before the church could support him, he worked a regular job, and he still put in 40 or more hours in the church. So I admire a person who does that, but I also understand this, that it is God's standard, and this is what God wants for his church, is that you are to support the minister in full-time ministry. He should not have to have another job to, to uh, uh, make sure that he can pay his bills. Now let me finish here by giving you some tips about how you can support the pastor. First of all, support him with your tithes and your offerings. And it should be obvious that that's what Paul's talking about in the passage. When you give your tithes and your offerings, some of that money goes to support me and my family. Other parts of it go to support other parts of ministry. Uh, We have to put out a bulletin every week. We have a church secretary that we pay. We have missionaries that have to be paid. Never begrudge what you bring in in tithes and offerings because all of that is spent in the Lord's work. This is how we get the Lord's work done. But I also want to add this. What you should not do, you should not designate your tithes and your offerings. Now, some people, they want to designate the money that they give to the church because they think, well, this ministry deserves it more than that. This person deserves it more than that person. This thing that we do needs more money than that. That's not your decision to make. The tithe belongs to the Lord. And whenever you decide that you're going to designate money, all that you do is you just make it harder on the different ministries of the church and you make you wreak havoc on a church budget we need to understand the church is a body and as a body we all decide where this money is to be spent and so what we make it a practice of doing is when you designate money we consider that a non-binding suggestion let me add another further principle of god's word that paul states and this he wrote in second corinthians chapter 9 but this i say He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. This is not a part of my message, but it just came to my mind right now because I like to mention this when I think about this scripture. Brother Jim Andrews and I had a talk about this one day, and I've told you about that before. But uh, we were discussing, should you tithe on your gross or on your net? And uh, Brother Jim said, just depends on how much you want to get blessed. If you want to get blessed more... Tie on the gross. If you don't, tie it on the net. I thought that was a pretty good answer. But anyway, this, this principle of sowing and reaping, that works as an individual, but it also works as a church body. The church that bountifully supports its pastor and its ministers will also receive the blessing from it. They will reap the benefits. The second thing that you can do for your pastor is to support him with your prayers. And it means a lot to me when people come to me and they say, Pastor, I am praying for you. I've told you many times that Zella says that to me lots of times. I'm praying for you. Jack and Francis tell me a lot. I'm praying for you, Pastor. I need your prayers. And when you tell me that you're praying for me and my family, that is a wonderful blessing. But I also know there are some people that will shake your hand and they'll say, Pastor, I'm praying for you. And in the back of their mind... I'm going to pray that all your needs are supplied, but in the back of their mind they're thinking, but I'm not going to give anything. I'm not going to tithe. I'm going to pray that your needs are supplied, but I'm not going to give. James had an answer for that. He says, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful for the body, what doth it profit? So James says, put some legs on those prayers. Bring your tithes and your offerings. Give. Then, the third thing that you can do is you can support with your service. There are a lot of things that need to be done in the church. One of the best ways that you can support the pastor and support this ministry is when we need help that you will step forward and you volunteer. There is so much work to be done. I am so proud of the people of Berean Baptist Church because we have people here that you work hard all day long. You put in the hours at work and then you come here and you volunteer time to help out in this church. You receive no financial remuneration from the church at all and yet you come and you give your time. God is pleased with that. Our church and your pastor needs that kind of support. Then lastly today, you can also do this. You can support your pastor with encouragement. I truly do wish that the church could be more like home on the range where seldom is heard a discouraging word and the skies are not cloudy all day. Unfortunately, that is not the way it is in the church. There are a lot of discouraging people. There are negative people. There are complaining people. And those kind of people hurt the church. But they're also encouraging people. And I have in my office a file in which I keep all of the encouraging cards and letters that I receive. And I get, a, I, I get quite a few of those from time to time. I save those things and I read those. I go back and read them again. And some of you are very good about that. You, you, you just take a little bit of time and you write me a note and, and you hand that to me or you send me an email or whatever it is to encourage me. I save those and I put them in my file. But I also have a file where I keep discouraging letters. And the discouraging letters, I go back and read sometimes too. Now, you think, well, well, why don't you just throw those things away? No, I go back and read the discouraging letters because then I'm reminded how the Lord helped me and how the Lord helped me triumph even over those people that are discouraging. So all of those discouraging letters, I put in the file. And then from time to time, I go down and bow down in front of my file cabinet and I say, thank the Lord, they're no longer here. All of the discouraging people have left the church. And that's, I praise the Lord that they did. But the encouraging notes, I need those. They help me to preach better and to preach harder. And as you can tell, I haven't been getting too many encouraging notes lately, so you need to send those to me. But Paul says, if you want to be the kind of church that the Lord blesses, one that takes care of the pastor, support him with your tithes and offerings, support him with your prayers, support him with your service, support him with your encouragement, and you'll find out that not only will God bless him, but God will bless you in the process. Take care of God's man, and God will take care of you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good principles that you set down in your word, and how thankful I am for Berean Baptist Church, and the great privilege it is to minister here. Lord, I just pray that we would be worthy of the reward, that the labor would be worthy of the hire. And Lord, you help me to be the kind of pastor that I need to be. And then help our people to be people who support the pastor in so many different ways. Bless us in this time of invitation. And Lord, we give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.